This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art by way of books. I'm Chris Kreitschow. I'm terrified. <laughs> you had no idea how excited I would get when we did a book club, I, did you? No, I Stephen was, Caradini. Wow. Yeah, I'm Stephen Caradini, and I'm also excited, but maybe not as excited as Chris. So there you go. Today, we're going to talk about The Phaedrus again by Plato. And we're going to talk about what does it mean thousands of years later for us? The arguments, the existence of it, the media of it, the meaning of it. We are just going to talk about does this do stuff? And if so, what does it do? <laughs> I was thinking that with only the slightest work, you could have turned that into a really nice Baptist sermon outline in terms of the... <laughs> The different things you were doing, and yeah. then you got to does this do stuff? And I was no, no, lost. I was it. close. I was so close. <laughs> Five point outline. It does this do stuff. That one didn't flow no, with the other no, ones. Do so I'm stuff. Sorry. Do stuff. This yeah. is in some ways actually the harder of these new episode formats that we're trying because we've literally never done this before in podcast form. Yeah, and summarizing a book is not not something we've done before either, but also kind of easy because you're just summarizing a book yeah this time we have to figure out how to have an argument about the book on air i, I take it back we kind of did this in our discussion of alan jacobs oh well we year did. of our lord 1943 oh, and before did. that shannon valor's technology and the virtues but neither of those were structured the way we're trying to structure yeah. these things and we didn't talk that much about technology and the virtues and well here we are trying to figure it out on air That's so if right. this episode is a little wonky listeners you know why Bear with us and give us suggestions for what might make it better. So here's here's a good starting point to the discussion. Why, if we are still reading this, should we continue to read it? I'm ready to say like, okay, we're done with Phaedrus. We're ready to not. <laughs> How many times have you had to read this now, Stephen? Technically, this is only the second time that I've been forced to read it, but I had to read it multiple times to understand it. So I don't. there's not really a good answer to that question. <laughs> I said the millionth time when we were introducing it because it feels like I can't escape this text, which is why I'm bringing this this question, can we be done now? This open question, should we escape this text? I think, unfortunately, I have to say the answer is no, because oh, I think... great. I know, I know. I think, though, that it does say some important things, and it does get at some important things, even if, as we discussed last time, the metaphysical presuppositions on which it hangs some of those things are not all that helpful. Wow, that's a very tidy euphemism for totally crazy. Well, I mean, I am an Orthodox Christian, not a 4th century BC Greek philosopher, so... Uh, he was a radical even in the 4th century. It's true. There were not a whole lot of people that were like, yeah, that's how it works. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. No. No, that is true. <laughs> but in some sense, I think the reason we keep reading it is that it is the head of this canon in many ways. And so many things which have come after have been shaped by it. And I remain profoundly persuaded by C.S. Lewis's argument in his introduction to Athanasius's On the Incarnation that it's always better to go back and read what someone actually wrote than to read other people's summaries and responses to it, which, as an aside, means, dear listeners, 
that listening to Stephen and me talk about and summarize and respond to the Phaedrus is not the same as going and reading it yourself. Stephen's face is saying, but do we really want to make people go read that, Chris? Do we really want to? It is. That is exactly my face. (laughs) I don't know how you read all of that off my face, but that is exactly my face. I found value, even where I ended up disagreeing, as Stephen said, with some of the wackier bits of this, with the experience of having actually gone back and read it and having a much better sense of what Plato's argument through the mouth of Socrates really is about books. I have a much better sense of what he was arguing about Mm -hmm. and what he was grumpy about and how much of it does and how much of it doesn't fit the, ah, people have always just hated new technologies. Because the reality is this book isn't doing that. This dialogue isn't doing that. And at a minimum, I feel much better qualified to tell people, no, that's not what Plato was saying. Plato was still wrong, but that's not what Plato was saying. This book isn't really about technologies. It's about knowing. It's about epistemology. And it's more about epistemology than I realized the first time that I read it. It's about what constitutes as knowing. Like, what is legitimate types of knowing? What are the ways that we should be doing this? And so, I mean, the argument is an argument. It exists. (laughs) Like, it's not not an argument. But it's so tied to his metaphysics and the epistemology wrapped up in those. Yes. That the argument as such doesn't really hold a lot of water with me when I come to it. Yeah. Because I don't share those metaphysics. Yeah. And, And that's sort of what I mean by can we just not, is that there's value in understanding what other people's epistemologies are. And like you said, reading this makes it clear that the way that this is invoked is not usually correct, which is half of the reason why we're doing this, is reading things that people invoke but don't actually understand. So there's definitely value, like you said, in reading old books for their merits and understanding what they say. But I just don't think we need to grapple too much with the total epistemological claim here, which is that the dialoguing of two souls aspires towards the real function of the universe. (laughs) And the way that you know is in this sort of production of knowledge. Like it's literally about the production of knowledge. How do you produce it? Do you put it in books? No, wrong. (laughs) Do you talk out loud? Yes, accurate. Uh, And so that's the argument. And so uh, this sort of sets the tone for the rest of the series, though, the rest of the this season is, what do we do when we say, here is an epistemology? It's not our epistemology. Do you grapple with it? Do you say, this is meaningful in some ways? Or do you say, like, huh, weird, someone else's epistemology? <laughs> how do you grapple with <laughs> the nature of how someone else understands knowing and the world, right? Right. Like, do you just have a catalog of, like, here's how... Phaedrus did it. Here's how. Leotard does it. Here's how. You know. The answer is no. You don't just have a catalog. <laughs> Ta-da. <laughs> Next question. That's the answer. See, I can be Socrates too. <laughs> yeah. Probably Socrates. Probably. I, I think that actually highlights something really interesting, though, that I had not framed in quite these terms, ironically, perhaps, or not so ironically, until having this dialogue with you about it right now. I mean, we, that that's a valid thing right like we are producing knowledge in a dialogue we'll come back to the fact that socrates is not wrong about the positive value of dialogue he's wrong about other things yeah but one of the things this highlights to me in reflecting on the value of this argument and the value of looking at epistemologies this way is that if we're going to think well about technologies we can't do it without metaphysics and epistemology 
Socrates' metaphysics may have been wrong in ways that led to wrong conclusions epistemologically that led him to wrong conclusions about writing and reading. But the reasons we think he's wrong about that are because we're thinking on these metaphysical and epistemological lines, and that we're not just looking at the technology in the abstract or in its own right, divorced from those kinds of contexts. If you're going to develop a right frame for technologies, any technologies, books, forks, the internet, or about podcasts on the internet, or any of these things, you do actually need to be approaching it from those kinds of first-order questions. Now, that doesn't mean every single blog post about technology needs to start with those first-order questions, but it means that there's enormous value in foregrounding those at times. And the fact that Socrates foregrounds his argument about rhetoric with these speeches about metaphysics are, in fact, I think, a really important framing for everything that comes after. And I think also, when we're thinking about epistemologies, not all of them will argue that they are the right epistemology or the right way to think about things. In fact, Leotard is about to say that there isn't a right way to think about things. Um, insofar as the the narrative is concerned. But thinking and engaging with that, Plato says this is the right way to think and to do and to be and to create knowledge. And so on some level, you can say we disagree that it's the right way. But at the same time, like we just said, we affirm that we now are six years into dialoguing our way towards knowledge and truth. Right. And that's been a productive exercise for us and also for the people who are listening to this Mm -hmm. podcast, apparently. And so there's a sense in which if this actually was about technologies, which it's not, the technology, quote unquote, of dialoguing versus the technology. (laughs) I hate it when people call things like dialoguing technologies, pet peeve. Sorry. Okay, so I'll I'll rephrase (laughs) the the production, the knowledge production. Oh gosh, I think I might that hate is... that even more. <laughs> what are we going to call it then, Chris? Thinking. What are you thinking? Do? Talking. But, but that's not. No, 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 no. I understand no, what you're getting. Literally, at. the argument is that that's not yes, it. I, I understand. <laughs> we have to have a category it is, here. It is precisely because of the way those terms tend to get deployed in our current discourse that they just make me twitchy. And, and that's fair, but the point here is that he's making distinctions between yes. thinking and talking Quite and right. various types of talking, and then dialogue is at the far end. And but so, I'm still going to go, oh, every time you say the technology of dialoguing. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a technology, <laughs> but in the way we were talking, I mean, the means it's a means of production of technology, technically. Sorry, <laughs> Marx, I guess. But whatever knowledge-making way it is it is different than books, right? So he is correctly identifying, I think, two ways of producing knowledge and the types of knowledge that they might produce. Now, he's very critical of the types of knowledge that books produce, right? and he's very highly praising this other type of production of knowledge. But essentially, the main argument about rhetoric is that there are some people that do it this way, there's some people that do it that way, there's some people that do it this way, and my way is the best, and so it, it isn't technologies, but it is a categorizing of ways of doing knowledge production and arguing why some are better and some are worse. Some are only part of the whole. Some are the whole, but a bad version of it. Some are knowledge that is abstracted from the actual existence of the soul. So I, I can get behind it insofar as 
it is grappling with in the way that McLuhan was grappling with what exists around us and how does it function? Yeah. How does it work its way into the world? And what are the products of these various types of thing? It's not that much different when you think about it in terms of being a criticism of whatever category you want to call it, knowledge production, media, technology, whatever. So as an underlying structure, I can sort of see where it's trying to get at and what it's trying to do if we abstract it out from the metaphysic bit. (laughs) Obviously, the metaphysic bit is underpinning it, but the contemporary rhetoric argument part is is a sort of discussion of technology, as much as it makes you cringe. I'm, I'll survive. <laughs> I think that gets at the sort of big picture of it. One of the things I found interesting was that there are also points of value to pull from it, even if you disagree with his final conclusions, and even if you disagree with the reasons for his final conclusions. Mm-hmm. And I think that gets at the other reason to read things like this. I had a very wise mentor in college who both taught and modeled the idea that you can learn from anybody and you should be seeking to. This was in a Christian ministry context. So you might have somebody come in and be preaching a sermon or teaching a lesson or something that is 98% just really whack and off the rails. That last 2%, you should grab it. And you don't have to like the other 98%, and you could you don't have to invite the person back either. But <laughs> take those 2%. You yeah. Take them and run with them. And part of what I want to make sure we do in this season is even when we hammer on those deep philosophical disagreements, make sure we do pull those out. Because I found a couple interesting points along that line. So... I think there's value in all of these books, even when we disagree with them, Mm -hmm. perhaps even more fundamentally than we do with this one, as I suspect we might when we read Ray Kurzweil in a few months. What's up? (laughs) That there's still probably something to garner from them because they are doing good works. And that, that gets at the books part of this question, which is to say, we're getting this from Plato because somebody wrote it down in a book. Actually on a scroll originally, but then later on a book. So what do we think about this, Stephen? Plato, who was so famously here hostile to books, clearly didn't mind that people wrote all of his stuff down. Well, he may have been dead. He may have been dead. But he had to know this was coming anyway. I'm interested in this because there's a lot of different ways you can take this. One is that he's a hypocrite. Fine, whatever. (laughs) Another is that he is sort of hedging his own books. And he's sort of telling people, like, if you went and talked to me, you'd get it better than this. Sorry about that. But, like, this is books can only do so much. The equivalent of the person who apologizes that they're sharing a tweet storm, but it's where the audience is. So it's where the audience is. So I got to roll with it. Yeah. There's, There's something like that. There's another sense in which. He is aware that he is in a changing culture. Mm -hmm. Like the whole thing is about what the ideal versus what the pragmatic is. Because he continues to say like the ideal is the dialogue of the souls. But he acknowledges that there are lots of other people who do a certain type of thing. And while he doesn't like the certain type of thing that he does, he doesn't especially say that they shouldn't be doing it. He says it's not a good thing to do, but he doesn't say that they should come and dialogue with him, right? He's sort of aware that he's in uh, a changing culture. And so I think that there's a a sense here that this is sort of a, a, a critic throwing up his hands in the face of the onslaught <laughs> and saying like, here's what I believe about it anyway. Because I don't think he particularly cares about books. 
or his own books because, well, I don't know. You start to get into the history of, like, did Plato write his own books? Did other people write his books? Like, if he wrote his own books, this is getting (laughs) weird and different. Right. If, by contrast, his disciples wrote down their memories of his dialogues because they were good scholars of orality. Aside, if you've ever wondered how the Gospels came to be, turns out that people in oral cultures have much better memories. Plato wasn't totally wrong. Let's acknowledge yeah, that. Yeah, no, he was not, for not totally wrong. For committing things to memory that you hear as part of an oral tradition that are repeated in different contexts. Over and over and over and over. Yeah, that's it's, it's a different pattern of mind. It's a different way of knowledge. Right. And so I think that there's a lot of different ways that you can interpret it. I think given the crankiness of <laughs> Socrates in the dialogue, that we're intended to see it a little bit as a defeatist sort of stance. Yeah. We're intended to see it as like, you know how to really get the good stuff? Y'all don't want it anyway. <laughs> Whatever. Right. Or possibly, given the ironic bent of the dialogue, and this gets at a point we made in our last episode, that it is hard to tease out without our irony punctuation mark yeah. exactly which parts are intended to be ironic or intended to be undercut by the actual work itself. The fact that Socrates here in particular, more I think even than in Republic or some of the others, really comes off as cranky old man. It is <laughs> a possible reading to say that Plato wants you to see that Socrates is onto something. But he goes too far. Mm-hmm. He's overly cranky because it's not his shtick. That's perhaps a contrary-wise reading to it, especially given that it really climaxes with Socrates making this point, and then they offer a prayer and go about their day. Yeah. But the structure of the text does suggest that, at a minimum, Plato does have that awareness of yeah. the fact that, it, at a minimum, he's now the old man shouting at the cloud through his books, if nothing else. This is a very self-aware text. It calls out other people by mm-hmm. name. like It calls itself out at points. This is a very self-aware text. There's obviously argument about when in Plato's life the Phaedrus was written, but there's at least some evidence to point that this was one of the last dialogues that was completed. And so this is a guy who's doing his thing, <laughs> right? Like he's he's putting out his masterpiece. He's throwing it down like he's retired, but still writing books, that sort of thing, right? And this is the maximum Platoness that you can get. <laughs> it's funny. It's serious. It's metaphysical. It's You can read it that way. You can also read it completely straight-faced and get a completely different reading out of it. Which a lot of people do. It's true. And if you do read it completely straight-faced, then surprisingly, Socrates is less cranky, (laughs) and he's more like trying to fix someone's bad ideas. It's just such a—as I said at the beginning of the first uh, episode, it's remarkably complex and difficult to interpret the Phaedrus. And so I by no means am an expert. Same. I've read this once this week. Yeah. And it is a— it is a real complex text, but that doesn't mean that we can't try to interpret it, which is what we're going to try to do for all these books is that to greater or lesser degrees, they're all going to have some of this level of, okay, it was written in a place by a person doing a thing. And now we're at least not in that same place as that person, geographically speaking. Right. In this case, we're also 2,500 years removed. Right, right. And so one of my favorite ways of thinking about it is that it is this sort of critical, it's all going to go the way of the books anyway, but you should just know that (laughs) dialoguing is the real deal. 
it's it, it's not that far off from the critics like Mumford and Jacquelul and these sorts of of people who, despite the onslaught, push back and say no. This is there's a real good here, despite whatever is coming afterwards. Yeah. I think the other thing that I found interesting in reading this were points of contact with things we've talked about, things we've written or done in the past. Socrates at one point talks about the fact that a book doesn't know who it's actually going to be read by. That's right. And this is a problem that persists. It is. Knowing your audience, being able to address your audience being able to have an in-the-room conversation is something we were talking about back on still one of my favorite titled episodes of the show back in season two, I think. Basketballs are not equal to pumpkins. I knew you were going to say that. That's one of mine, too. But, but we were talking all the way back there in that episode about the problem that you have on the internet, which is the same problem that Plato's Socrates was getting at 2,500 years ago, Mm -hmm. and and it's ramped up. It's exacerbated on the internet. It's what leads to hate readings and someone sending their hordes of trolls followers to go look at and heap abuse on this person of the drive-by reading. But the problem is that loss of context. I put an assumed audience header on every blog post I publish to try to mitigate this just a little bit because Socrates isn't wrong. There is a real problem here for the written word that dialogue in person does do better at. And so when we think about things like that, when we think about technologies that underlie the advent of remote work, which is very near and dear to me because I'm a remote worker, every time we talk about remote work, we have to acknowledge the fact that as many goods as there are, as many goods as there are when Stephen and I have this conversation across the internet from each other, It's different doing this, and it's different yet talking in a chat medium like Slack or Twist, which we use for winning slowly or any of these things. And those media are different from emails, are different from letters, are different from books, and they're different in substantive ways that do actually matter. And it doesn't mean that in every case we have to say the one that came before is superior. I think there are things that letters do which are in fact superior to talking to each other in person in some ways. Mm-hmm. In particular, for people who have a hard time with the off-the-cuff snappy dialogue, they can afford opportunity for careful thought, and they can a- afford opportunities to say better what you mean and what you care about. Mm-hmm. There are, therefore, always trade-offs, and as we've said, sometimes the trade-offs are such that you should in fact reject a technology. Right. But Socrates wasn't wrong. Plato's Socrates. Plato wasn't wrong about dialogue. He wasn't wrong about the fact that losing that connection to your audience really does matter. And those kinds of considerations are ones that we should continually bring to the fore when we think about epistemology, when we think about technology, and particularly when we think about fitting the two together. The transmission of knowledge happens differently in different media or different conditions. I like that. The last thing that I wanted to think about and point out is that insofar as there is an epistemology displayed here, the way of knowing that he espouses is that you as a person, to some extent, are the knowledge that you have. It emerges out of your soul. And that is why dialoguing is better than books is because you don't have any chance to fake it (laughs) because the things that you know just emerge out of your soul in oral form. And so this is, 
different than how we think about knowledge, which is contained in your head, in your brain, and is not necessarily affected or affecting your moral character. But he links the two very clearly, your moral character and your knowledge and your knowing are connected. And I don't think we really, other than virtue ethicists, go that way as an epistemological tack. Yeah, I very much agree. And I think insofar as I have points of contact with this platonic metaphysics, it is in the fact that knowledge is not so separable from what you do and your practice. And I may not think that I just have a better and a worse nature, and one of them is heavenly, and one of them is this physical body that I'm lugging around to my great distress, because I think bodies are good, because I'm a Christian. But I do therefore agree with Plato that our knowledge is mediated, and it's good and right that our knowledge is mediated by our experience, and more than that is in some sense constituted by our lived practices. We talked about this a lot when we were talking about virtue ethics a couple seasons ago, that Mm -hmm. wisdom doesn't, we think, actually exist merely in the ability to recite facts. It is integrative of our practices and our habits and the ways our communities form us and we form them. And so I like that as a closing note for thinking about Phaedrus here, because I think of all the things in it, it's perhaps the most important one to take away, that the reason that the shapes of our technologies do matter so much is not merely those trade-offs, but the ways that they contribute to our formation. Mm -hmm. It's not only that an email transmits information in a different way than a letter does, than a dialogue does, etc., but that the act of participating in those things does in fact shape us, that the act of being on Twitter 24-7 shapes us in a way, even that reading books 24-7, which might also be bad for your soul, doesn't shape you in the same way, though. And so taking that away as an important framing, to me, returns me to what I opened with, which is that, yes, we should keep reading this, Stephen. Maybe you and I don't need to keep reading it, but people should keep reading it. (laughs) Fine. It is, I can say for it that the second time around, it was a lot more nuanced mm-hmm. than I remembered. And that's partly because it was in a different context. I was not reading it in a rhetoric doctoral program, right? So we were looking at its claims about rhetoric. And I remember talking about the two horses, but I did not make the connection <laughs> between the soul and the rhetoric at that at that point, I don't think. But yeah, it's it's a it's a weird book, man. It's I'm weird. glad we talked about it. Yeah, it, it is far more epistemological than I thought it was. And I think I think even though you're not going to allow me to have a physical catalog of epistemologies, <laughs> I think that that's a good way to go about some summaries, is that the epistemology here is yeah. essentially your knowledge and your soul are coterminous to a degree, and the achievement of knowledge is the achievement of your soul aspiring towards its ideal heights. And all the other conclusions flow out of that. Well, next month, we'll be back with Jean-Francois Lyotard's The Postmodern Condition, which will be uh, almost literally the opposite of this book. (laughs) That is a good summary. (laughs) Almost literally the opposite. We're going to stick to the first and third Wednesdays, so get excited about that for March. The music at the beginning of the episode was Electric One, Part B. 
by Elkhorn. If you're interested in supporting the show, you can do that at Patreon, and you can uh, hit us there and check out our new tiers. We're still really excited about that. <laughs> you can also reach us at uh, cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. If you want to reach us with with media that are not money, but are more like words, you can do that by sending yes. us an email at hello <laughs> at winningslowly.org or messaging us on Patreon, which I will see, or tweeting at us or messaging us on Twitter and Facebook, respectively, at Winning Slowly and on our Facebook page, which Stephen will see, but I will not. That's true. That's true. We would love to hear from you what you thought of this first attempt at an analysis episode of a book like this. Tell us what you thought, whether you agreed with us, whether we were totally way off the rails in our interpretation of Plato. Mm -hmm. And as always, thanks for listening.